Hello and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. There is so much to say. There is so much great stuff going on. Uh, spring has sprung. It's the 14th Sunday of the year. Uh, here we are at the beginning of April, uh, and everything is kind of cranking up. It's uh, considered to be the best sports week of the year by a lot of people. You have the opening days of baseball going on this week. You have March Madness that's going to be peaking over the next couple of days as the uh, men's and women's NCAA basketball champions are going to be crowned. Uh, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal are playing right now in the Miami Open in tennis. Uh, There's no football, which for me is a big bonus anytime you're talking about great sports. You don't have football sucking up all the oxygen. Uh, The Masters Golf Tournament is in Augusta next weekend. Outdoor track season is getting underway, and most important and most excitingly to me uh, is that today you had the Tour of Flanders, and one week from today uh, you had Perry roubaix The Tour of Flanders is my favorite single-day cycling race of the year, and it lived up to the hype. It was a brilliant, epic race this year. Some people considered the winner's performance, and I won't ruin it for you, the winner's performance to be one of the all-time great performances in the history of the Tour of Flanders. Uh, And then next week, the Perry roubaix That seems to be everybody else's favorite uh, single one-day classic, which I enjoy which I look forward to watching, um, but it's not my favorite. Um, Your factoid of the day, if you're looking for something um, having to do with the best sports week of the year, having to do with March Madness, is that the men's championship basketball game tomorrow night is going to be between Gonzaga and UNC. Uh, And if you're looking for yet another reason to cheer for Gonzaga, because I'm going to presume that most of you are going to be cheering for Gonzaga because, you know, UNC is UNC. Um... The coach of Gonzaga is named Pat Tyson, and Pat Tyson's roommate in college uh, was none other than Steve Prefontaine. Uh, Steve Prefontaine is considered by many, myself included, to be one of the, if not the greatest American distance runner of all time. Um, Pat Tyson was his roommate back in the day. Anyway, um, lots of news going on in the sports world as well. Some of you might have been following what's going on with the women in USA hockey with the U.S. women's hockey team, national team. Um... They have been threatening to boycott the world championships were actually being held here in the United States, just outside of Detroit, uh, this week. They've been threatening to boycott uh, because USA Hockey, their governing federation, have been treating them so shoddily over the course of the past several years. Uh, I found a quotation here actually online, and it's from, from NPR, uh, that, that kind of sums it up here. So, so to share it here, quote, The existing U.S. national team is a dominant player in women's ice hockey. They've medaled in all five Olympic games that featured women's hockey and won the world championship seven times since 2000. Over the same time frame, the men won two Olympic and two world championship silvers. Uh, However, approximately half of the national team players hold second or third jobs, according to a press release from the lawyers representing the team. Um, Unquote. the reason why they hold second or third jobs is because USA Hockey, their governing federation, uh, only gives them $1,000 a month, and then only in the six months leading up to the Olympic Games. And so that means they only get paid for six months every four years, and at that, they only get paid $1,000 a month. Um, $6,000 every four years is how much they pay them to be representing the United States in the U.S. Uh, or the World Hockey Championships, uh, both Olympics and World Championships, uh, and as I just said, they're dominant. They're they're the the best uh, team in women's ice hockey in the world over the course of the past several years. Um, it also, as we talked about several podcasts ago, um, it also the support that they get pales in comparison to the support that the men's team uh, men's team gets. Um, 
They weren't doing anything to build women's hockey in the United States while they had a development fund um, and a development uh, a team that was specific for men's hockey. Um, and and kind of gallingly, they were also left out of a lot of um, important PR things. And so there was a lot of important gestures and symbolic things they were left out of. Um, for example, none of the marketing materials for USA Hockey ever had any women in them. They only had men in them. Um, recently, a couple of months ago, when they were releasing the jerseys, that the national teams were going to be wearing in the world championships is going in the United States right now. They invited a whole bunch of men for the national team to come and be there at the jersey release, and they didn't invite any people from the women's team to actually come and, and be there at the jersey release, despite the fact that the women are such a better team than the men. So, um, But you probably saw they reached an agreement uh, just in time, just prior to the start of the world championships. Um, they're going to be getting paid $3,000 a month and not just in Olympic years. Um, and then with some bonuses that are tied in from the U.S. Olympic Committee, that means they can get up to $70,000 a year, which still, if you compare it to, to how much professional athletes make, uh, even male hockey players, pro players, uh, it's, it's not very much, but it's better. Um, they'll get bonuses for getting medals, which is I think is very important. Um, and they're also establishing an advisory board to help try and grow women's hockey at the grassroots level. Um, the women accepted that deal, and they promptly went out and beat Canada in hockey, and then they crushed Russia today 7 to nothing. So uh, showing the sort of dominance and sort of power that they have here. Um, and so we're glad that they reached an agreement. Um, more news. Um, if you're not already following Amanda Coker on Facebook, you need to be following Amanda Coker on Facebook. Now, Amanda Coker is a woman, she's only about 24 years old, but she set out 46 weeks ago, 46 weeks ago yesterday, to try and set the women's record for the most miles cycled in a year, in 365 days. Now, the old record that was set way back in 1938, so the old record is, is 80 years old almost, was 29,603.7 miles um, cycled in a year, on a bike in a year. Um, I want you to take a second and think. She got, she's gone through 46 weeks. She has six weeks to go. Take a second and think about how far you think she might have gone already. I'll give you a hint. She already broke the record. I'll give you another hint. She broke the old record on day 130. You give up? She has so far gone 75,160 miles, and she still has six weeks to go left in the year. Uh, if you do the math on it, that's 233.4 miles a day. She has gone every single day for 46 weeks over the course of the past 46 weeks here, over the course of the past year. Um, she's averaging more than 20 miles an hour. She's doing most of it in uh, this near Flatwoods, this Flatwoods Park outside of Tampa, Florida. Uh, she's encouraging folks to join her. Um, and she has this big club of people that she's calling the 100 Miles Club. And so if you join her for 100 miles, you, you, you sign your name and you get to go on her website and all that sort of thing. So I think that's kind of a cool thing, too, that she's making this big community thing, too. Um, uh, the most that she's done in a single day was 270, um, which is just incredible. But but put it all together, that means she is moving 
about 11 hours a day on her bike, not including breaks, not including stops, not including lunch, not including anything else. She's moving 11 hours a day, seven days a week, and she's done that for 46 weeks in a row. Uh, trying to put away that national record or that world record uh, so that maybe what she's able to do is going to be lasting for another 80 years after that. So pretty incredible. Um, she's done some of it on a recumbent bike and some of it on a standard bike. Um, and the only reason why I mention that is because recumbents, uh, a lot of ultra cyclists use recumbents and recumbents have kind of a bad reputation inside the cycling community and they totally shouldn't. Um, some of the most dedicated cyclists in the world ride on recumbents. Um, I remember even George Carlin, the comedian, uh, one time in a in a comic bit made fun of people who rode recumbent bikes, saying they need to ride real bikes. Um, the reason why a lot of people ride recumbent bikes is because they love cycling, but they've come to a place where their body won't let them ride in a standard position anymore. And so rather than giving up cycling entirely, uh, they ride a recumbent bike. And so if you get to know people on recumbent bikes, and certainly I don't want to paint all of them with one brush, but people on recumbent bikes, some of them are the most dedicated cyclists you'll find. Uh, some of them love the sport of cycling far more than those of us who ride standards bikes do. So uh, so get to know some recumbent riders. Um, speaking of news, one piece of news that some of you probably saw from last not, uh, month was about the death of a man named Ed Whitlock. Um, Ed Whitlock was a British-Canadian guy, um, and he died at age 86. He had only turned 86 a couple of weeks prior to dying. Um, at age 85, so only about three or four months ago um, in the fall, he ran the Toronto Marathon, which was sort of his local marathon, and he ran it every single year. Um, 85 years old, runs a Toronto Marathon three or four months ago, at the outset of having prostate cancer, by the way, um, which nobody really knew about, and he runs 3.56.34. He runs under four hours. Uh, he's still, to this day, as far as we know, the oldest person ever to run under four hours for a marathon. Um, what's incredible is if you go back a little bit farther, you can find some truly, truly mind-blowing performances. Um, chief amongst those is that in 2004, when Ed Whitlock was 73 years old, he ran... 254.48 for a marathon. 254.48 for a marathon at the Toronto Marathon. Uh, that's just under 640 per mile, and he was 73 years old at the time. Um, that has to stand up as one of the most stunning age group, one of the most stunning senior performances of all time. Um, now, he was just starting to get a lot of attention. Um, he actually had an article about him in January or February in the New York Times. And then it kind of caught a lot of people by surprise, including me, uh, when he died in March. I had been planning to do the, this podcast about him and talk a little bit about him anyway. Uh, and then I, then I found out that he died, um, which I was certainly very sorry to see. Um, but anyway, a lot is always made whenever they talk about Ed Whitlock and what he does about him bucking the trends and him doing things differently and, and about how his success is so mysterious because he doesn't tend to follow any of the established norms in distance running. So consider this, for example. Uh, this is a quotation from the article um, in the New York Times about him a couple of months ago. It says, quote, Whitlock's career has been as unorthodox as it is remarkable. For starters, he trains alone in the Milton Evergreen Cemetery near his home outside Toronto. He runs laps for three and three and a half hours at a time, unbothered by traffic or the eternal inhabitants or the modern theories and gadgets of training. 
At the Toronto Marathon, he raced in 15-year-old shoes and a singlet that was 20 or 30 years old. He has no coach. He follows no special diet. He does not chart his mileage. He wears no heart rate monitor. He takes no ice baths, gets no massages. He shovels snow in the winter and gardens in the summer, but lifts no weights, does no sit-ups or push-ups. He avoids stretching, except the day of a race. Uh, He takes no medication, only a supplement that may or may not help his knees. Now, I think, unquote, uh, I think that we talk about him this way. We talk about him as being this kind of iconoclast who, who just kind of is able to, to, to do these, these incredible performances despite the fact that he doesn't follow the norms of, of, of training and exercise science. I think we talk about him because it kind of builds the mystique. It kind of adds to this idea that he's somehow superhuman. Um, and in many ways he is superhuman, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, but I want to submit that we need to recast how we tend to think about him. Um, yeah, he deserves a lot of credit, and he's a brilliant runner and fantastic. Um, but rather than looking at him and thinking, wow, he's just incredible, he's doing all these things that I'll never be able to do, I think it's important to look at him and people like him uh, that help us think about how to train, regardless of who we are. After all, if he's able to push back against nature like this, if he's able to, at age 73, run 254, then clearly he must be doing something right. Um, and I think that all of us of all ages, by looking at what he does uh, and looking at what we knew about him when he was doing his great performances, um, I think that, that, that digging a little bit deeper into his routines and who he was and his assets as an athlete um, will help us figure out some of the things that, that we can do to make ourselves better athletes. Um, so... With that said, let's kind of put him in context here a little bit. Um, he is obviously a senior athlete. He, uh, he was a good runner back in the day, but um, the thing that really makes him stand out is the fact that, that he didn't tend to decline as he got older. Um, he, he tended to run about as fast into his 60s as he had in his 40s and 50s. And so once he became a master's athlete, he was, he was running about the same speeds um, as he had been before. And so his PRs were never, never super duper fast um, until, of course, he got older. And then when you start age grading his performances, that's when, when he, he truly began to stand out. Um, older athletes are actually getting a lot of attention right now. Um, some of you might have seen there was an article actually in the uh, the New York Times just uh, just last month. Uh, obviously, not the same one that, that, that mentioned Ed Whitlock here, um, but it was written by a guy named David Epstein. Um, and David Epstein is is a well known writer. He wrote a book called The Sports Gene that came out about four or five years ago that was excellent. That was outstanding. Um, and then he's also a writer. He's a freelance writer, um, and he's published a lot of things on ProPublica. Um, and specifically, a lot of the stuff about drug use inside the Nike Oregon Project um, that was revealed in ProPublica was, was written by him and was researched by him. But anyway, uh, writing in, the, uh, in the, the, the New York Times about, about a month ago, um, he, he was talking about these sort of sports comeback heroes or, or older than we might expect them to be athletes. Um, uh, and he said, quote, I have been inspired of late by several sports comeback heroes in their mid to late 30s. Tom Brady leading the Patriots to an improbable Super Bowl win. We don't want to talk about that. Roger Federer overcoming Rafael Nadal in a decisive fifth set in the Australian Open to secure his 18th Grand Slam title. Others have remained dominant well into their 30s. Serena Williams won her 23rd Grand Slam singles championship at 35, also at the Australian Open, defeating her 36-year-old sister in the final. Here's the thing. 
we sh- actually shouldn't be so surprised. When athletes train consistently, recover smartly, and get a little lucky, there's no physiological reasons that their body should fall off a cliff into their 30s. Um, and I think that that, unquote, that that sort of reflects where we are right now with our attitude towards towards aging athletes. He talks a little bit about how Michael Phelps, who competed in the Olympics last year at age 31, and Anthony Irvin, who uh, who won the 50 free, the, the sprint, at age 35, about how they were both described as these like aging men and about how they're, they're fighting against nature. And, and uh, there was this one article that, that, that referred to Michael Phelps as uh, fighting his biggest enemy, age, and he's only 31 years old old um and and he talks about how how this sort of conventional wisdom is around well once you get out of your 20s you can't really do anything anymore and about how that's essentially wrong um and we're seeing at a very high level and at, at much lower levels too how, how wrong that is um we're starting to realize in other words that older athletes can be great athletes so i decided to dig into the literature a little bit about aging athletes so kind of with this in mind and 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 thinking about ed whitlock and what we can take from him i decided to dig a little bit into the literature um and it was sort of interesting. Um, looking at the research literature on aging and physical activity, I found a lot of literature from the 1980s um, that pointed to this inevitable decline for athletes into their 40s. Um, and there was this overall feeling of like hopelessness in that literature about being an older athlete. Um, now, the reason why the 80s, why it was so big in the 80s, is because that's about the time that baby boomers were starting to turn around 40 years old, you know. Um, and the goal of this research in the 80s was to explain why athletes were getting slower. It wasn't about how you can continue to achieve as an older athlete or maybe how we could reverse some of these effects or maybe some of the things we can do to address some of these issues. But rather, it was just basically about why they got slower. Um, and like I said, the, this whole kind of sense of hopelessness seemed to prevail uh, in a lot of that literature. Um, in the 2000s, though, uh, there were a lot of calls inside the literature, inside the research, uh, that were calling for exercise physiologists um, to do research that would help the aging athlete population. Um, and those calls are, are now beginning to bear fruit. And so in the 80s, you had this kind of, okay, let's diagnose what the problem is. In the 2000s, you had people saying, okay, we got what the problem is. Now what can we do? Hey, somebody do some research. And then in the late 2000s and into the 2010s, uh, we've actually had exercise physiologists doing a lot of those that, that research. And essentially... There are four things that that researchers are finding that hurt older athletes or that slow down older endurance athletes. Uh, the first is declining aerobic capacity. Uh, the second is increased body fat. The third is shrinking muscles. And the fourth is decreased mobility. Um, now, I want to talk about all of these. Um, but I think that would make the podcast a little bit too long here and a little bit too ambitious. And so I'm going to talk about each one of them in turn over the course of subsequent podcasts. I'm going to make that my goal here over the course of the next few weeks. And so I'm only going to take the time today to talk about one of these. Uh, and specifically that is declining aerobic capacity. Um, as we get older, our aerobic capacity goes down. Now, aerobic capacity is measured as what's called VO2 max. Um, and that's your maximal oxygen, uh, oxygen uptake. Uh, essentially what aerobic capacity means is how much air can you get into your system and deliver to your muscles. Um, since your, your, your muscles work off of oxygen, um, since they need oxygen to work unless you're doing something very short and anaerobic, uh, like a 100-meter sprint or something, uh, we can look at the amount of oxygen that a person can actually take in um, and get a sense of if they're trained and if we help them, how much they they 
or how well they could potentially perform. Um, and so everybody has this VO2 max number um, that when we're born is probably somewhere between like 50 and 90 or something like that. 90 would be extremely high. Uh, 50 would be about average. Um, and everybody has this. Now, it's largely genetically determined. It's only one factor, um, but it does indicate your potential. So let's say, for example, you do a VO2 max test. Now, I did one of these recently, as a matter of fact. Um, and, and you put on this big mask and you run on a treadmill essentially till you can't really run on a treadmill anymore. Uh, you run fast, 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 and the mask will actually begin to to uh, measure how how much air is coming in and out. Uh, and based on that, it will then calculate how much air you is your maximum that you can take in. Um, and based on that, you get this number, and it indicates your potential. Now, now. Whether you run efficiently, like how well you move and how well you use the oxygen once it gets to your to your muscles, that's obviously a factor. How well trained you are, that's obviously a factor as well. It's not like somebody with a really, really high aerobic capacity or very high VO2 max and potential can simply go out and run super fast, even though they can run pretty fast. Um, they certainly can't reach their full potential. Uh, but anyway, your VO2 max declines as we get older. Um, uh, you start with it at a certain level. It peaks somewhere around your your, your, your early to mid-20s, uh, and then it declines as you get older. Now, there was this study, though, that was done in the 1970s by a guy named Michael Pollack at the Institute of Aerobics Research in Dallas, Texas. Um, and he took 24 competitive Masters runners who were between the ages of 42 and 59, and he followed them for 10 years, which is fantastic. Ten years he was able to follow these guys and, and, and see where they went. Now, they're only on men, and that's a problem, but but we got to set that aside for a minute. Um, Thirteen of the runners, during the ten years that he was following them, uh, they quit competing. Um, they continued to run, because they were runners after all, and they, they want all the secondary benefits of running, um, but they just kind of went out and jogged. They just did long, long, slow distance. They weren't doing any hard workouts, and they weren't doing any racing. The other 11 of them continued to race at a very high intensity. They did 5Ks and 10Ks on the weekends, and they might run a workout or two during the week in order to improve their their race performances on the weekend. And even though both groups put in about the same weekly mileage, even though they were both running the same number of miles, the high-intensity runners, that group of 11 that were continuing to race and run at high intensities, saw their VO2 max over the course of 10 years only 1.6%, while the long, slow distance group, the group that was just going out and jogging every day, their VO2 max dropped 12%. 1.6% versus 12%. Now, the takeaway for all of us is, is, is twofold. The first thing is that um, you can, in fact, stop this decline of aerobic capacity, this, this decline of VO2 max. Um, Secondly, the thing that you have to do in order to make that happen is to run hard. Uh, you have to do hard running workouts. You have to race these short distances that tap into your maximum aerobic capacity. Um, it's almost sort of the related to the, the, the old use it or lose it type maxim. Um, if you're not using your VO2 max, if you're not stressing that system, uh, then in fact that, that system will slip away and it, it will decline. Uh, again, those who are still using it, those who are still running at a very high intensity, and we're talking about 5K pace or better, um, on a regular basis, they saw their VO2 max drop only 1.6%. And these are guys who are already 
over the age of 40, 1.6% compared to the long, slow distance group who were never getting, never taxing their VO2 max system, uh, who dropped 12%. Um, so why is it then that we don't tend to run faster, harder stuff? I mean, clearly this shows that, that you need to be running hard. Well, I think there's two reasons, really. Um, first, I think that a lot of us think that it doesn't matter if we do long course stuff. Now, as we tend to get older, people tend to move up a little bit more in distance. And there's a wide variety of reasons for that. But um, I think a lot of folks tend to move into marathons or even ultra marathons. They tend to say, oh, well, I don't really need that super high-end stuff anymore. I don't need that VO2 max stuff anymore. Um, I literally read two articles just this week from two different sources that said that if you want to improve your marathons, you need to run more 5Ks. Um, and so that idea is just wrong. Um, now, as you get closer to a marathon, you shouldn't only be doing VO2 max stuff um, because the rules of periodization uh, suggest that as you get closer to your target race, and if your target race is an Ironman or a marathon or something that, that involves uh, longer, steadier running as opposed to short, fast running, um, then you should be doing longer, steadier workouts. As you get closer to that longer, steadier race, you should be doing longer, steadier workouts. However, early on in your training cycle, 12 weeks out, 16 weeks out from your target long race, you need to be doing that short, fast stuff, those lung-searing repeats uh, that, that hurt, um, and, and, but, but actually will improve your VO2 max, or at least, if you're older, keep it from declining at, at such a striking rate. Um, if you want to think about it this way, think about it this way. Um, if you do that VO2 max work early, then by the time you get to the tempo running and the steady running that takes place later, you'll be able to do that tempo running and that steady pace running faster, which means that your marathon in turn will be faster. Um, said another way or thought about another way, the faster you can run a mile, the faster you can run a 5K. The faster you can run a 5K, the faster you can run a 10K. The faster you can run a 10K, the faster you can run a half marathon. The faster you can run a half marathon, the faster you can run a marathon. Um, so there is certainly a place inside even long course training uh, for high-end VO2 max style training, high-intensity interval training if you want to call that. Uh, the second reason why I think that a lot of folks, uh, as we get older and as we start to do more long core stuff, don't want to do this is frankly because we're scared of that type of hurt. Um, it's very rare that you will see someone who is a marathon runner cross the finish line during a workout or even during a race and bend over and grab their knees because they had to dig that deep and they're breathing that hard. You just don't see that very often. Um, and it's because we're uncomfortable with that. Maybe it makes it feel unsafe. Maybe it makes it feel unsettled. Maybe we just flat don't like it. Like that's not a type, type of pain that we really relish. We like that long, slow, even sweet burn. Um, but that really hardcore, heavy breathing, can't talk feeling that you get from doing high-end stuff, we don't really like that. Um, I know people who do super ultra stuff, who do super duper duper long stuff, and they are they are well beyond the Ironman, uh, double Ironmans, triple Ironmans, etc. Um, and and they are tough as nails, and they work hard. Um, but you put them in a five k or ten k, and they'll jog through it because they don't want that type of hurt. Um, they're scared of that type of hurt. Um, and I get that. I understand that. But 
if you want to continue to perform at a very high level, you need to, to learn to like that type of hurt. Um, so let's bring it back to Ed Whitlock then. Um, so Ed Whitlock, like I said, we can look at him and we can say, okay, well, does his example, does his continuing ability to perform at a very high level, does that teach us anything about what we need to be doing? Um, and like I said, people wanted to portray him as being this a guy who, who never really uh, went along with exercise science. And even in the quotation I read to you before, it said that he just ran these long loops over and over and over again in a local cemetery. Um, but that's not quite accurate. Um, it's not quite right to suggest that, that, that he never did it. First of all, um, Ed Whitlock underwent a battery of tests when he turned 80. Um, they tested him in a really wide variety of ways, and one of the things they gave him was a max VO2 test. Uh, they put him on the treadmill, they put the mask on him, they had him run hard until he exhausted, uh, and he was gasping deeply for air. And what they found is that at age 80, his max VO2 was comparable to a college-age student, an average college student. Now, not a college athlete, um, but a college student. So somebody who was literally 60 years younger than he was. He had the same VO2. And so his VO2, for reasons we don't entirely know, although we do know a little bit of it, and I'll tell you that in a second, um, for reasons that we don't entirely know, his VO2 stayed really, really high. Now, that suggests to me that one of the things that that led to his great performances as he got older was his abnormally high max VO2. And so again, if you think that max VO2 doesn't matter because you're doing long course stuff, he's an example of why it does matter. Um, his max VO2 was abnormally high, and as a result, he was able to run a 254 marathon as a 73-year-old to run under four hours as an 85-year-old uh, because he has a super high max VO2. Um, but in addition... He did do VO2 work. He did do high-intensity stuff. And, and when you read the articles about him, they don't tend to talk all that much about him. But he regularly raced, at the very least, 5Ks. Um, he was still capable of running under 25 minutes of 5K on the day that he died. Uh, in fact, his 5K was in line with his marathon time, if you get the equivalent times. Um, now, what I mean by that is this. If you take your 5K time and you multiply it by about 96 you'll get your marathon time. Now, if your marathon time is slower, that means that you're better trained for your 5K than you are for your marathon. If your marathon is faster, that means that that you're better trained for your marathon than you are for your 5K. Um, His 5K was in line with his marathon. Um, It was exactly where it needed to be, which means that he was paying attention to his aerobic capacity. In training for a marathon, he was also... Um, running hard such that he maintained his ability to still run a fast 5K. You don't do that by ignoring your aerobic capacity. Um, So clearly he was willing to put himself into the pain cave fairly regularly. Uh, Despite the idea that that he simply ran a bunch of easy laps and that's the reason that was secret to his success, no. It's because he was working hard and he was doing high-intensity work on a regular basis. Um, I'm also reminded at the same time, by the way, of Lou Hollander, uh, those of you who are who are long course triathletes have heard of Lou Hollander. Lou Hollander last year in 2016 uh, opened up a new age group at the Ironman World Championships in Kona, um, the 85 to 89 age group um, uh, for men. Um, Lou Hollander has, has finished Kona more than 20 times um, and and has continued to qualify and continue to complete Ironmans uh, well into his 80s here. Um, and Lou Hollander, if you ask him the secret of his longevity, he says. I have two rules. 
Number, rule number one is don't eat anything that you can't identify the parts. And so in other words, hot dogs and stuff like that that you don't really know what they are. He doesn't eat any of that stuff. And number two, he says go anaerobic every day. Um, now what he means when he says go anaerobic every day, if, if, you, if you hear him talk about it, is he basically means go hard every day. Um, and, and he doesn't do these long, hard, sustained two-hour workouts every single day. Uh, in fact, he says that there are plenty of times when he simply kind of warms up and then runs up a hill, and he's like, I think that's good. I'm it. Yeah, I made it. Um, and, uh, and so, but, but that's clearly a, a fundamental part of, of his training regime, um, and it's been enough to, to keep him doing Ironmans well into his 80s here. Um, all right, like I said, that's about aerobic capacity, and and of the four factors that that were that were named or have been named by exercise physiologists, uh, namely declining aerobic capacity, more body fat, shrinking muscles, and decreased mobility, um, that's the one that I wanted to talk about first. And to talk about the rest of them, I would take this podcast into a little bit too long. Um, but I do look forward to next time uh, talking a little bit more about uh, declining. Uh, or shrinking muscle. Um, runners have started to do a lot of research and a lot more weightlifting, and I want to talk a little bit about that next time. Um, quick footnote at the end. Um, I was talking about the Epstein article from the New York Times a little bit earlier, um, and and there's something important in there that he mentions that I didn't want to leave out here when we were talking about this, and it's specifically, it's a lesson that we can learn from older athletes um, that we can apply to our mentoring younger athletes. And he says this, quote, I thought of Federer. He, he has credited luck and his attacking style of play, which leads to short points and less running around for some of his longevity. But he also eased into his career, in a certain manner of speaking, playing fewer tournaments than many of his competitors early on. In late 2014, I remember Federer talking about how he felt bringing more consistency to his training rather than ramping his training way down and then up just before tournaments helped him temper back problems as he got older. To be sure, there are athletes who do not who do seem almost to expire in short order. Tiger Woods, for example, seems to be in perpetual partial comeback from one injury or another in recent years, a result perhaps of bad luck and the increased injury risk of athletes who specialize extremely early. Even Serena Williams' father backed off on competitions when she was 10 so that she and her sister Venus would have a lighter load. As for Tom Brady, he embraced variety early. He was drafted as a catcher out of high school by the Montreal Expos, unquote. And I mention this because this is the big important lesson that we can take away when it comes to actually mentoring younger athletes. Uh, and it's borne out by exercise physiologists um, uh, who widely advocate not specializing in a sport until after puberty. Um, I think a lot of parents, uh, and, and kids too, but, but certainly a lot of parents, we want to see our, our, our kids begin to specialize in a sport. Um, before puberty, we want to see them play golf at a very high level or play tennis at a very high level or, or run track and field or whatever it happens to be. Um, and in fact, uh, athletes are much better off both as, as healthy people and as athletes um, if, if they do not begin to specialize their sports until after puberty. Um, and the specific reason for this is something I believe I've talked about on this podcast before, and it's called neural pruning. Um, neural pruning is what takes place during puberty, and it's something that pretty much any teacher or any parent of a preteen or of, of an adolescent has seen before. Um, when a child is around the age of puberty, around age 13, 14, something like that, their brain goes through as much reconstruction during that time as it does when they're a toddler. Um, and essentially what the brain does is it culls all the neurons that they're not using. 
Um, again, kind of a use it or lose it type thing here. And that's called, like I said, neural pruning. Um, if you've ever heard before people say that, that if you're going to learn how to speak a language, you need to learn how to do it before age 15, this is why. Uh, if you've ever heard people say it's really, really good, or if you've seen people, if you've been in a triathlon and you've seen people who have swam past you and you're like, what's the secret to your swimming success? And they say, oh, I swam summer swimming when I was a little kid. They weren't even necessarily very good at it, but they did it when they were a little kid. The reason why is because those neural patterns were established prior to puberty, uh, and as a result, they weren't pruned. Um, they weren't culled when the brain did its reconstruction uh, during puberty. If you have a young person who's doing a wide variety of sports, that means they're using a wide variety of neurons. And when neural pruning happens, as it does to everybody, they will have fewer of their motor neurons actually pruned away because they're using so many of them. If they're only playing golf or only playing tennis or only running in a straight line, there's a whole bunch of their motor neurons that they're not using. And as a result, when... when neural pruning happens, those neural groups will be pruned away. Um, so the point here, like I said, this is just sort of a footnote. If you have young kids and they want to get into sports and you want them to get into sports and you want them to be healthy individuals and long-term athletes, don't specialize them too early. Um, encourage them to do a wide variety of things. Not only will it be mentally better for them, uh, but it's actually physiologically and neurologically better for them as well. So there you have it, our latest episode of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. I'm sorry I've been away so long, but uh, I was excited to, to, to finally pull the trigger on this one and, and, and share it with all of you. Uh, please don't forget to reach out to me, at Pleasant Podcast on Twitter, if you have a suggestion or a question or anything else you would like to hear on the air. Um, you can go to the blog that I never write in at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Um, the way that people most often contact me uh, is on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. So by all means, reach out to me on there, and I would love to hear from you. Uh, don't forget about our sponsors. Uh, we're brought to you by ITL Coaching, uh, the company that I coach for, itlcoaching.com. They're on Twitter at itlcoaching, uh, and they're on Facebook at facebook.com slash performance. And, of course, don't forget my wife, the travel agent. Uh, she specializes in Disney travel, but she books cruises. She books hotels. She does all sorts of other things. Uh, let her know if you uh, need help planning some travel. Uh, we're going to, to Disney World in three weeks, as a matter of fact, to do the Dark Side 10K and Half Marathon that we talked about a little bit on this podcast last year. I'll tell you about it after it's over. But, anyway... My wife, Casey, the travel agent, facebook.com slash CaseyTravelPlannerMEV. Um, and you can also drop her line at CaseyTravelPlanner. That's K-A-C-I-E TravelPlanner at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a review. We appreciate it. See you next time.